Casey Cardinia Libraries would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which this podcast was recorded. We wish to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening. We are back for 2022 with another exciting year at Book Matters, where we chat to people who write books and read books from here in Australia and all over the world. So sit back and get set for some great listening and reading recommendations. Today at Book Matters, we enjoyed chatting to two fabulous Australian authors. First up, Sam talks to acclaimed writer Meg Bignall about her newest novel, The Angry Woman's Choir. A laugh-out-loud tale of friendship, music, and the incredible capability of women to achieve wonderful things. Jess then speaks to debut YA author Miranda Luby about her novel Sadie Starr's Guide to Starting Over, a magnificent exploration of performance feminism, hashtag MeToo, eating disorders, bullying, family dynamics, and grief. And of course, we have some great reading recommendations from our staff here at the library. Listen and enjoy. Thank you. Meg Bignall was a nurse and a weather presenter before she surrendered to a desire to write. Since then, she's been writing almost every day, either to earn a crust, to get something off her chest or to entertain herself. She's also written three short films. She sings a bit too, occasionally writes and performs cabaret, but is mostly very busy being a mum to three and a wife to one. She lives with her family on a dairy farm on Tasmania's east coast. The Angry Woman's Choir is her third novel. Welcome to Book Matters, Meg Bignall. Thank you for having me, Sam. <laughs> your multifaceted bio almost reads like it belongs to your main character, Freysonet. Do you know? <laughs> <laughs> you like to have your fingers in many pies? I don't know whether I like to. I just It's just how life works for me. I don't seem to be able to settle on any one thing, although now that I'm up to book three, I would love to just be a novelist, but I've kind of made my bed and now I have to lie in it. <laughs> so I've got all these other projects on the go as well as a family to look after and I married a farmer. So, you know, uh, that's just how I have to live. And maybe if I was just writing every day, all day, I'd be sick of it and I'd run out of material. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, firstly, congratulations on writing such a heartwarming and fun novel on the topic of women's anger, which is quite a feat. Um, I get the sense that you had a lot of fun writing this book. Is that the case? Yes, thank you for saying that. Yes, I really did have so much fun writing it. I mean, not all of it was fun, of course, but it really did flow for me. The first draft was came out in such a rush. It felt really urgent to write it. And I, there are characters in there that just made it really fun. I, one of my rules is that I have to be having fun and if I'm not, something's going wrong. So um, it's just one of those things that keeps me on the right path because really I just want to entertain people as well as making them think and teaching them a th- thing or two. But really my favourite thing is to make people laugh. Well, you did that, definitely. There were quite a few spots where I laughed. For those who don't know, would you mind telling our listeners what this novel is about? Yeah, so my protagonist, uh, Freysonet Barnes, is um, the mother of three children. She lives a sort of idyllic-looking life 
she's got a successful husband, a beautiful house, high-achieving children, and all the boxes ticked, I guess. A really busy schedule, but it's quite, it's so busy that she discovers she hasn't actually made room for herself. And she falls into, quite by accident, the very noisy, eccentric arms of a women's choir who are so enlightened and uh, outspoken and kind of accepting that uh, they kind of ruin her life, which was a life that kind of needed ruining. That's a lovely way to put it. Thank <laughs> <A> kid. <laughs> I, I actually picked out a quote from the book because I, um, I really loved it and it was, um, it dissolves knots in her muscles and ideas in her head and tells her rage doesn't have to be ugly. It can be measured and exquisite and captivating. She realises that perhaps anger is a skill you can practice till it's perfect. Um, you've touched on a universal theme of women and anger and how it's created, repressed and expressed. Could you tell us what inspired you to write a book with these themes? Well, there were so many different sources of inspiration, one of them being the man with the orange hair trumping along in America. Um, ah, yes, yes, yes. Which just seemed to me the most powerful man in the world telling people how he treats women and where he grabs them and how much they love it just seemed like the most incredible impost on on us as women. And so that made me angry. Uh, I also, along the way, had the shadow of COVID. Um, I'm in Tasmania and we were so relatively unscathed. Our lockdown went for seven weeks. That was it. Um, so, But there was a time there I, I moved back uh, full-time to the farm with my three children and um, it was just relegated to me automatically to look after their needs and their teaching and um, their requirements and my work came second place. So that made me angry. <laughs> you know, we were, the sort of obligation of taking the caregiving role and caregiving being so undervalued, it became very blatant during that time. Uh, so that was another factor. Also, there were elements like Grace Tame, who um, was so outspoken, the the issues surrounding Christian Porter and the allegations within national parliament, federal parliament, they all made they all contributed. So, but this I'd already started the book; those things just fueled it, you know. And yeah, yeah. Um, Grace is just Grace Tame to me. She went she went to the school that I attended she was abused within that school I had shared that same teacher um oh wow my girls now attend that school so it felt very close to home I don't know her but um I was quite um inspired by how outspoken she's been and how brave and uh, so it all culminated in quite a sense of urgency. But I don't want it to sound like I went all dark and impenetrable. The book does have its dark moments, but um, as your the quote that you read said, I wanted to illustrate that anger can feed into creativity and productivity and beauty and friendship and connection and music. <laughs> I agree. And it, it's, I think... Anger's a tricky one for women because it's not there isn't really that permission. No, and I think it, it's 
even though we're talking about it and it's it's um, it's becoming more accepted at a grassroots level, you know, it still is frowned upon. You know, Grace didn't smile at the Prime Minister and uh, you you become outspoken at a lunch and it sort of sends reverberations of, you know, that person's a weirdo or, you know, not rational, all those kinds of things. So, yeah, it needs to change. And anger, of course, can be destructive, but I think it doesn't always have to be. And maybe those things that it can destroy need need to be destroyed. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. And you you mentioned, and you've just really covered that, the rage about all the gaps, all the inequalities. And um, obviously, there's a lot of these gaps widening even since the book's been released, like um, some of the stuff's going on in the States is um, pretty devastating and mm. enough to make half the world angry. Were you wanting to bridge some of these gaps by writing this story? I mean, that's that might be a bit over ambitious. I'd love to say <laughs> that that's what I'm trying to do, but just even to open people's eyes. And I think most women already know these things, but they just don't have time which is part of the problem. So it feeds back into the whole cycle of um, not speaking out against oppression and injustice. And that doesn't have to be like, of course, there are, I address uh, those kind of injustices that happen within religion and race and economic uh, backgrounds, Uh, but it can happen on a daily basis within a privileged life, such as Freysenay's life. Um, and I think I'd just like to think that maybe I can uh, remind people to bear witness to those things, speak out against them, teach our children about them and perhaps affect some change in the long term. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you covered this actually when you were mentioning lockdown, but um, there's a real sense in the story of women peeling back the layers of the roles that they play to discover what's hiding underneath. And I thought the story was almost like a manifesto for all that a woman is outside of the you know traditional roles of caretaker, motherhood, and marriage. And um, I was going to ask, is this something you've discovered in your own life and the lives of the women you know? But obviously, you have, and and it's yeah. partially inspired. It. Yeah, yeah, and that's really insightful because actually one of the themes that I wrote on my the theme page of my notebook. I have a complicated set of notebooks with indexes, but on the theme page. One of the ones that I highlighted was what are the masks you're hiding behind or what are the disguises you're hiding behind? And if you read the book, um, I won't give away any spoilers, but there are some more explicit examples of disguises and the disguises that women might use on a day-to-day basis. So, yeah, absolutely, that was a central theme. That's so interesting because my next question was going to be around this the skills of disguise that phrase display and, and whether you know uh, it's a metaphor for what women do day to day in order to fulfill the roles expected of them so you yeah you just well you hit the nail on the head absolutely yeah yeah, yeah right um you also seem to be saying something about the necessity for female friendships like this book felt like a love letter to the relationships between women can you speak into that yeah i can i think um it 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 is a love letter to that and it's a tribute to my incredible friendship groups and which are sort of ever evolving and um and pretty dynamic but also have this beautiful grounding in the the my childhood friends that I still have that you just 
know so well. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but also the connections you can make via something that's um, creative. So you don't necessarily just have to catch up for coffee, but these women are catching up and making music and and there's a whole different level of friendship that comes from that that I've discovered. I'm a member, I was a member of a choir prior to COVID. I still sing with some fantastic women and um, it's like a different kind of family. It's just a joyous, I, every time we get together and sing, I think to myself, what a beautiful way to spend an afternoon. So there was, and I actually, I didn't, I didn't write a question about the music, but you're right, the music <clears throat> plays an enormous part. What were you wanting to sort of express around the music? Uh, gosh, music's featured in all three of my novels and I'm not particularly musical. I'm just a music enthusiast, yeah. I suppose, and I want it to be present in everyone's lives. I think it has enormous power um, and benefits to the brain. I think that scientists have probably proven that. Um, but I, all, the other thing that happens with me is that I'm, I am a singer I'm not a fantastic singer. My range is limited and I'm, I've am i been pretty devastated by that fact since I was about 12 <laughs> when I saw the original cast of Les Mis in London. And um, and so I think I'm, I haven't done this consciously, but I think I'm giving all my characters, particularly in this book, the gift of being able to sing beautifully and it soothes my devastated soul. <laughs> Well, so music, yeah, I'm, I don't write about music with any expertise, just pure love. That's beautiful. I, and talking of love, this book also, it also had a feel of a love letter to Tasmania for me. So Tasmania as a setting feels very present through the book and integral to the story. Was that intentional to share that sense of place? It's never actually that intentional. It's just that, you know, I'm, I'm a proud Tasmanian. I'm sixth generation. Um, I'm aware of of how briefly myself and my ancestors have been here and how dark our history is. Um, but I don't necessarily find any overt sort of creative inspiration from where I live. I think it's just that this is what I know. And so that sense of place is kind of comes naturally because I'm so familiar with this place. Uh, I've got memories on every street corner, you know, so it just, I think that comes through quite organically. Um, right. I'm, especially since COVID, I'm a little bit claustrophobic. I'd quite like to take my novel and novels and my research off the island. <laughs> and um, it's going to be interesting to see how my work, how that sense of place might change, given that I'll be trying to work in places I don't know very well. Mm. And are you currently working on another novel? Yes, uh, I'm always working on novels. I've got sort of uh, three different sets of notebooks for three different projects that are sitting here um, at the moment that I haven't, like I've been working on in between publicity work for the Angry Women's Choir. So I haven't had a good run on any three of them in the last few weeks, but my job very soon is to just choose one of those projects and concentrate on it. This is what generally happens. Something will tell me which one to work on. I'll give it enough time so that it becomes an entity that I can't abandon and then I'm away. So 
that's the next thing on the list. But this, this, the one that seems to be speaking to me more than the others is is definitely it starts in Tasmania, but it doesn't stay here very long. So it's kind of exciting, kind of scary. Excellent. And could you tell us about your writing journey to publication? Yeah, so I, um, as you said in the intro, I've had a, I've had a very checkered work history just purely because of circumstance and restlessness and my personality. Um, I've, I left school and studied nursing and went into trauma nursing um, at the age of 19. So pretty young, having come from a very sheltered childhood straight into a public hospital system riddled with kind of life and all the bad things that can happen. And it was one way that I counteracted some of the trauma that I saw was to write a journal and that writing just became a daily habit which I it became sort of a necessity and then I started to write more creative stuff had a few things published and then jumped ship from nursing into television as a trainee copywriter (laughs) and and then that sort of evolved into other creative pursuits filmmaking I worked for channels channel seven all Saints in Sydney as a medical advisor in the script department ah. and on set. So it, the nursing kind of blended very slowly into sort of more creative stuff. And I've so I've really been writing, you know, my, all of my adult life. Um, and then eventually I met up with some other writers and one of them said, you know, you should try writing a novel and have you got any ideas? And I had this very vague very raunchy idea for a book and she said just write it so I did and then I sent 10,000 words of pure filth to the head of Penguin Random House which (laughs) I would never do now it just I look back and it it seemed completely audacious Um, but she just said well she firstly she said she read it kind of between her fingers with her hand covering her eyes um, but then she said, keep going. And that was enough. You know, I kept going. I landed myself a wonderful literary agent, which was just um, kind of the turning point because then I realised that this could actually happen. Um, and that just seemed like a stroke of luck. We went back to Penguin by a matter of courtesy, courtesy and um, they took my first novel, which was called The Sparkle Pages. It's not as filthy anymore. It got cleaned up. <laughs> Great way to um, attract initial attention, though. <laughs> yes, it wasn't planned that way. I don't, oh, my goodness. I, I dread to think what what was in that first draft. Mm. <laughs> um, do you, on that note, do you have any advice for aspiring authors aside from probably do not send? <laughs> well, you know, I wasn't, that wasn't bravery on my part. That was, it's not bravery if you don't realise you're being brave. It was pure ignorance. But maybe just be brave you know, try those things. Um, the other advice I would give is you just obviously read. I'm a huge reader. I read lots of wonderful writers and some really bad writers and both are just as important. Um, I think um, if you can, you know, start a little network with other writers and this is comes with caution because you can embed yourself into sort of writing communities and spend all this time doing workshops and things and never actually writing. So um, just 
you, it's important to have those networks. I think it's been wonderful for me, but just be careful you don't get lost in that sort of world. Um, and lastly, practice. Just do it. You know, just start. Put your yeah. bum on the seat and start. And what books are you currently reading, speaking of reading good and bad? Um, oh, I'm reading uh, the advanced copy of Wish & Co by Minnie Duck. So ah. that is not bad writing at all. <laughs> and she's um, another Tasmanian author and um, her book is out very soon, August. <clears throat> so keep an eye out for that. It's really good. I'm halfway through, loving it. Um, I'm also, I love um discovering writers especially women writers from sort of mid-century or earlier that sort of went by the wayside and then yeah. have been re-released so that's one of my favorite things Elizabeth Jane Howard has been one of those that just was such a huge source of inspiration for me she writes mundanity so beautifully um Nina Stubbe is a contemporary writer from England who writes brilliant comic novels I'm very jealous of her comic genius <laughs> and I aspire to be as funny as she is um I do love listening to I listen to audiobooks as well and I love love listening to um murder mysteries I don't like fantasy I love a ghost story and I love a really good um atmospheric murder mystery I love an yeah. audiobook too yeah, they're so great. I'm so into them. It just makes me want to do housework more. So it's a bonus. <laughs> and walking the dog and yes. Yeah, yes, walking and yeah, exercise and it's yeah. it's great to be able to multitask like that. Well, thank you so much, Meg, for speaking to us today. The Angry Women's Choir is available from the Casey Cardinia Library's catalogue. Order a copy today. Thank you so much for having me, Sam. It's been lovely to chat. Welcome to Book Matters. My name's Jess. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Miranda Luby, debut author of a new book, Sadie Starr's Guide to Starting Over. Sadie Starr is obsessed with starting over. A new year, a new diet, a new social media identity. Anything that gives her a chance to be a better version of herself. So when her dad's job moves the family interstate, Sadie's excited for a fresh start. It's also the perfect excuse to leave behind the mess she's made with her best friend and secret crush, Daniel, whose advances she rejected for fear of screwing things up. But at her new school, life gets complicated fast. Sadie Starr's Guide to Starting Over is an engaging, funny, serious look at the downsides of aiming too high, the dangers of black and white thinking, and the journey to realising imperfections are part of being human. Welcome to Book Matters, Miranda. Thank you, Jess. Thanks for having me. Before we get into your new novel, can you tell us a bit about your path to becoming a writer? Was it always the dream? Yeah, it was always the dream for me. From a young age, I was writing or even before I was writing anything original, I would copy passages of different <sighs> books, specifically The Babysitter's Club, and I would give them to my mum and say, look what I wrote, and she would say, lovely, darling, congratulations, that's a great read, knowing full well that I was, you know, <laughs> before I had any originality. Which, so, yeah, I think clearly from that I had always wanted to tell stories with words. And having said that, though, I wasn't particularly great at English at school. I didn't write phenomenal essays. I didn't get incredible marks in English. I've never been really an essay writer, probably because it didn't excite me much. 
And so, you know, at school, I, I did have a career counsellor saying, well, we're not too sure about a career in writing, <laughs> but gave it a go anyway. And it's proof that there's all sorts of different types of writing. And just because you're not particularly academic doesn't mean you can't make a career out of it. Mm, absolutely. So what did you do before you wrote Sadie Star? So I've been a journalist for News Corp, a lifestyle journalist for many years and doing a lot of travel writing as well and editing some magazines. I freelance now, some journalism and also a lot of copywriting for different businesses, which I really enjoy. I've always been a writer and yeah, writing opinion pieces and, and that sort of thing. And then probably about eight years ago or so, I'd always wanted to write a novel and I'd always wanted to write fiction, but I didn't really get serious about it until about maybe yeah, seven or eight years ago. Wow. So why did you choose young adult fiction? The voice comes quite naturally to me. I did, you know, when I first started writing fiction, I did start writing with the idea that it would be a book for adults, but probably because I hadn't read a lot of young adult fiction that was coming out at the time. And then I sort of took a step back and thought, let's have a look at what this voice sounds most like in the market. And it was definitely a YA voice. And then, you know, after reading some of the incredible YA books that are out now, telling really important stories in a really emotive and exciting way, now I just devour YA and I, I love writing in that voice. And yeah, I think it does come quite naturally to me. Some of the writing that I've done in the past that's probably engaged readers the most has been my opinion columns which are always first person, really relatable, asking questions about the world, their curious voice. And I think that's similar to a YA voice. It's inclusive and it's, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's asking questions about the world that, that we all might wonder and we're on the journey together in that piece of writing. And so that to me, those two things are connected in my mind. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, whenever I speak to teenagers in the library, I always feel like I can't speak like them anymore. I'm too old. I'm too separated from it. I feel a bit daggy. So when I was reading your book, I felt like it was very authentic. There was definitely a lot of colloquialisms in there that sounded really authentic. Can you tell me how you manage that? Do you have young people in your life? Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm glad it came across that way. And I actually don't, I guess, firstly, probably reading a lot of YA would be key to that. And yeah, I don't actually have a lot of young people in my life, but I just do think it comes quite naturally to me. I mean, you know, when you read someone attempting a young adult voice and it isn't working, so that can be helpful too, <laughs> you know, to go, okay, that's not how to do that. Yeah, look, honestly, I think it just must come naturally to me. It sounds strange to say, but I, you know, I'm 34. I still feel like a teenager <laughs> sometimes. So yeah, I, I didn't have to try too hard. And perhaps that's why I chose YA. So how long did it take you to write the book? And can you tell me a bit about your process? Absolutely. So it's a tricky question because often, you know, you're on and off a bit with a book, some people not so much, but I started the book and probably worked on it for about six months. And then I felt like it wasn't working. And also I'm a perfectionist, Sadie is as well. And mm. so when something isn't working for me, I find it difficult to keep going. And I gave up, you know, in inverted commas. And I thought, oh, this isn't working, forget about it. And took six months off, which for me, I didn't enjoy it. Felt like I was quitting, but actually it's the time that I needed to mm. sit with a book in my mind. And one of the things I realized was that I I wasn't being as truthful as possible with some of the themes, especially with Sadie's disordered eating. 
So when I sort of realized that, I came came back to it, spent probably another six to nine months on it, and which, you know, is fairly quick and then could definitely have gone with a few more <laughs> rounds of edits. But I sort of tried my luck with the text prize and sent it off. Yeah. Tell us about the text prize. Yeah, so I sent it in to text publishing, part of the text prize, which is such an incredible opportunity that they offer, especially because it can be so difficult to get an agent and a publisher anywhere and in Australia and sent it off and takes a couple of months and, you know, then a phone call comes through and it's a it's either a no number or a number you haven't seen and you think, oh, yeah, it's someone from a charity or something and you pick up anyway and uh, and it was someone from text publishing saying that I'd been shortlisted, which was an incredible moment. You spend most of the time while you're writing a book wondering whether it's good enough Mm -hmm. um, and not really knowing until you get a call like that. And then a few weeks later, I got another call um, from my editor, Jane Pearson at Text Publishing. And she was lovely. She said, oh, it's Jane from Text Publishing. And I got all excited. And she said, I've got good news and bad news. You didn't win the text prize, but we'd love to publish your book anyway, which was definitely (laughs) good enough for me. Yeah, that is an amazing opportunity. And such a great thing as a debut author to be, yeah, to get that sort of feedback, I can imagine. Yeah. So there's lots of themes in the book and really done well. It's not preachy. It's just these themes are intertwined. So themes like disordered eating, bullying, relationships, friendships, parental relationships, cancellation, the dangers of black and white thinking, as well as perfectionism. So yeah, a really hefty book, but easy to read and I don't know, approachable Sadie was really, yeah, I was rooting for Sadie and she was flawed, but also really likable. So can you tell me a little bit about what inspired you to explore these topics, especially the disordered eating and the perfectionism? Sorry. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting how it all came together. I guess the, the very beginning of the novel started with the idea of starting over, whether it's possible when I was 14, my family moved from Sydney to London and a friend turned to me and said, you know, you can be anyone you want now. You can totally (laughs) reinvent yourself. And I've always been interested in that idea of starting over from that point. We all, you know, look for opportunities to start over, I think, in in smaller ways, a New Year's resolution and a new notebook from Officeworks and maybe a new haircut or just a Monday, you know. So I wanted to write a character who, who was obsessed with this idea of starting over. But I quite quickly realized when I was writing her that that obsession stemmed from a really perfectionist, black and white, all or nothing thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, And that she was really struggling a lot more than I'd originally realized, which was essentially what I was going through on a personal note as well. This idea that when we think about perfectionism, I think we think about the results of perfectionism that are praised in our culture, great organizational skills and maybe weight loss and anything Mm -hmm. that can do that you know they very high achievers but the other side of perfectionism which perhaps isn't talked about as much can be things like burnout procrastination disordered eating particularly binge eating you can't live up to the standards that you hold yourself to as a perfectionist and sometimes it swings the other way so I wanted to write about that this yeah this character with this really all or nothing black and white thinking and while I was writing about her I was also thinking about how there's a similar 
black and white, all or nothing framing sometimes in some of the conversations we have about social issues in our mm-hmm. social discourse, um, particularly online. So this idea that, you know, you either toe the line, you parrot the socially approved narrative, or you can be an outcast, that there's often not room for questioning something that might be a bit controversial, having an opinion that sits in the gray area, you have to believe exactly what you should believe, or you can be cancelled, you know, in inverted mm-hmm. commas. Just watching that sort of play out quite a lot, particularly online, was really interesting to me. And I just thought I noticed the parallels between Sadie's thinking and that thinking. And so for me, that sort of external plot and then Sadie's struggles came together to form this one story. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Did you start over when you moved to the UK? I actually didn't. I mean, I think, you know, I didn't in in an extreme way that Sadie does. So Sadie in the story, she deletes all her social media. I didn't have social media back then. (laughs) She throws out a lot of her clothes, the clothes, like cat themed t-shirts that are very her, that she wants to leave her old self behind. And she goes on a new diet and a new exercise regime. So she's very extreme in that way, which obviously works from a plot perspective as well. I didn't do that. I do remember thinking, going to this school and no one knows who I am. I can be any type of girl, but you can't leave your old self behind. You can't act. Mm. And so that probably lasted over a day before, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, so I, I didn't. And I don't generally think it's probably possible or a very good idea. Yeah, there's no escaping your true self. That's right. <laughs> you said that you related to Sadie in your perfectionism. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of us can relate to perfectionism and just on varying degrees. I guess I've always been quite a high achiever in areas that I apply myself to and thought that's a great thing. That's good. And you get rewarded for that and you get compliments for that. But then I I would find myself, you know, with these self-destructive behaviors as well, giving up on something that I didn't think I would be fantastic at, particularly sports, always throughout school. It was like, or musical instruments, another example. Mm -hmm. If If I didn't think I could achieve a really high level in something, I just didn't want to do it at all. And then for many years, disordered eating in that way, I would want my diet to be perfect, whether that was sort of calorie counting or eating healthily and exercising the right, in inverted commas, number of Mm. times a week. And when I couldn't live up to that standard, I thought, you know what, and I think this is common, give up, forget about it. I've screwed up already. Start again on Monday. And we have varying degrees of what that looks like. And Sadie in the book is very extreme and possibly would be clinically diagnosed with binge eating disorder and definitely needs some mental health help because this is a mental health issue. So yeah, so Sadie, you know, she's not me, but I definitely understand (laughs) her mind. And as I've come to understand the two sides of the coin that is perfectionism in myself, and realized, because I think perfectionists think, well, a perfectionist would never binge eat. A perfectionist would never give up. That's not perfectionism, but it is. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And um, we just uh, sometimes don't recognize it. And if you try to fix one side without the other, it's just going to make it worse. So we need to have this like holistic approach to people who really struggle with perfectionism. And that's what I came to realize in myself and what Sadie comes to realize too. Fantastic. Did you... Share the book with any young adult readers before it was published? I did at a very late stage. Because I didn't know any that were particularly avid readers or that I would know how to filter their opinion into something helpful for me at the time, I didn't early, but later on I did. And that was actually mostly to have a look at the social media use in the book, just to make sure that that all rang true. Because while I am, I do love social media, 
I don't think we can pretend that a 34-year-old knows exactly how a 16-year-old uses TikTok. So, yeah, I did later on. So have you got another book in the pipeline? Because this has been so well-received and even whispers of a CBCA nomination. I read a few reviews online. People really respond well to the way that it's softly exploring these topics in a really accessible way. Have you got anything else in the pipeline for young adults or for adults? Yeah, I do. I wrote a book before I wrote Sadie for young adults that I'm still working on. I learned so much in the editing process with Mm. my fabulous editor, Jane, at Text, that uh, I'm now going back to that manuscript and, and reworking that. I am excited about it. It's it's about controlling relationships in teenage years, which is an experience I've had as well. And so for me, that's something really important to explore. And it's told from the perspective of the controlling person, which I think sometimes they can be really vilified in these stories. But like in Sadie's story, everyone generally means well and they're doing the best. And when they do something bad, it's because they have a reason for it, because of their background or their insecurities or their mental health issues. So that's something I'm really keen to explore. So yeah, working on that. But I'm also, um, the question interests me because a lot of Sadie's struggles are due to living in this really sort of achievement orientated culture. And I think that's something that we need to sort of keep an eye on sometimes. Mm. Obviously, it's great to have goals and I'd love to write another book. But I think also in this moment to be like proud of, of this book and that that's all, if that was the only book published, that would be enough too. Absolutely. Yeah, you should be so proud. Do you have any tips for aspiring writers out there who might be listening in today? Yeah, great question. I think trying to find your voice is so important and it's not necessarily what you love to read. I love reading adult literary fiction, but it's not a voice that probably suits my style. Mm. And so I think it's not trying to force yourself to be a different writer and, you know, really being true to your own voice and that's young adult or if that's picture books or nonfiction or whatever that is, I think when you find that you know. And yeah, and also just going easy on yourself. One of the bit of advice out there is to write every day. I think, you know, a few authors debunk that, but certainly say the six months I took off writing Sadie, I was writing in my mind. I was figuring out how to tell the story in a more truthful way. And if you force it and feel bad about yourself for not writing, it's just going to make the whole thing harder and more difficult to get back to the desk. So yeah, going, going easy on yourself is a big one. And then in terms of, you know, practical advice, I like to get up and write really early before I can think too much about is this Uh working or before the self-doubt creeps in, getting up while you're still sort of in that dream state and just doing two hours in a really productive way. And then just you've done it for the day. You don't need to think about it again. You know, the more you can treat it a little bit like work, I think that really helps with the self-doubt. Mm, Absolutely. Very similar themes to what you explored in Sadie's Star, actually. So... What sort of books? Oh, you said you like to read literary fiction. Can you recommend a book or tell us what you are reading now? Yeah. Well, what I'm reading now actually is a new YA book that's about to come out. I've got an early copy. It's called Where You Left Us by Rhiannon Wilde. And she wrote a beautiful book, came out maybe last year or the year before, that was really well received called Henry Hamlet's Heart. And yes, I'm I'm reading that at the moment. But what I can recommend is actually a brilliant, what I read recently is like a book on write, the writing craft and life. And it's by a woman called Lee Kaufman. 
and it's called The Writer Laid Bare and it's about writing with emotional honesty and living Mm. with emotional honesty, which I think is so important and definitely related to Sadie. So that's it's a beautiful book and I I highly recommend that as well. Mm -hmm. How does it feel to have Sadie out there? You had your book launched this week or your public it was published this week. Uh, Does it feel amazing? It does feel amazing. It's all of the good things that people say. People say, oh, you must be so excited. It must feel so great. And it does. It really does. It's fantastic. But it's a mix of things as well. It's also really nerve-wracking to have your work out there. You feel very vulnerable. Lots of people are reading your work, especially when it's a quite a personal book. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a real mix of emotions. But then you get particular feedback from a reader, especially a teen who really connected with the story and it never had a feeling like that before. Mm. So yeah, it's a mix and you definitely actually there's a great part of the a section in Anne Lamott's book called Bird by Bird where she talks about publishing and she says one of the truest things I know about publishing is the line from the movie Cool Runnings which is about a Jamaican bobsled team and they're going for the gold in the Olympics and their coach is a former gold medalist sort of gone to seed and he turns to the team and says boys if you if you weren't good enough before the gold medal you're not going to be good enough with one and I think that's so true of publishing a book none of that self-doubt goes away so you need to take a good hard look at yourself and say what am I how am I going to feel if I when I get a negative review because you will is that are they, am I going to let that person take this away from me or am I going to say I'm proud of this book I did everything that I could here it is so yeah that's been an interesting process and I've been making sure that I just focus on yeah being proud of my work absolutely I've never heard Cool Runnings quoted as an inspirational quote, but that really works. (laughs) So if our audiences want to connect with you online, what is the best way for them to do that? Well, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, but I think Instagram I use the most. So yeah, it's just at Miranda Luby, L-U-B-Y. And also visit my website, MirandaLuby.com. But yeah, Instagram's a great way. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more from you, Miranda, in the future. Thank you so much for joining us today. You can get a copy of Miranda's book, Sadie Starr's Guide to Starting Over, at your local library or from any good bookshop, I'm sure. Thank you again, Miranda. It's been delightful to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me, Jess. I've loved it. Now let's hear what our library staff have been reading. Hi, I'm Courtney from Endeavour Hills Library and I've been reading Stepping Up by Sarah Turner. Stepping Up is a late coming of age tale. Beth has never committed to anything, neither a job nor a relationship, but Friday night drinks at the pub. However, when tragedy strikes, Beth finds herself responsible for the care of her teenage niece and toddler nephew. It's time for Beth to grow up and it will be the hardest challenge she has ever faced. Beth as a protagonist is both lovable and frustrating. You spend much of the novel cheering for her, but also groaning in despair when she fumbles. It's relatable as she navigates through the rights of growing up, a bleat a little later than some of us, and parenting when you're not a parent. The story manages to find that delicate balance between making the reader laugh and reminisce at shared experiences, but handle the delicate nature of grief from multiple perspectives. Stepping up could have been cheesy, but it's not. The characters are well-developed and the plot perfectly paced. It's a wonderful read that will have you laugh, cry, and reminisce. Stepping Up is available for loan from any Casey Cardinia Library branch. Happy reading! Hi, my name's Tim, and I'm from Bunjil Place Library, and I've been reading Funky Town by Paul Kennedy. Part biography and part teen coming-of-age story, Funky Town is sure to find its way onto the VCE reading list in years to come. 
That said, it was a terrific read that shines a light on life growing up in the Melbourne suburbs under the fear of the Cannonock murders and the watchful eye of the AFL selectors. I personally connected with this story due to my childhood proximity to Frankston and the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne. There's references to the nightclubs of Frankston and the fish and chip shop and having biffos in the streets. Paul has really captured a slice of life for a teenage boy growing up in these conditions. Our protagonist, who is Paul himself, has a passion for football and we join him as he works his way up from the lowest VFL league to the AFL. He's challenged by the lure of alcohol that accompanies the club culture, almost contradictory to the hard work required to perform on the field. 90s footballers drop in and out of the story and I enjoyed reminiscing about the footy stars that I loved as a kid. I didn't even barrack for St Kilda, but hearing about the talented Robert Harvey brought back really good memories. The Cannonock murders and the wave of fear that swept the community in the 90s was cleverly compared to lockdown restrictions from today. With no one on the street after dark and any male caught outside curfew questioned by police, there's striking similarities. The treatment of women and the definition of manhood is another interesting theme that runs through this story. Paul strives to be a respectful person to the women in his life, as shown through his strong bond with his mother and also his English teacher. But this runs contradictory to the vulgar language that his clubmates and classmates use when talking about women. The desire to fit in, to exude machismo around his peers, clashes with what he knows is right. I thought it did a good job of capturing that sensation of being on the sidelines when someone makes an inappropriate joke or a remark and you don't call them out on it. Part of Paul's character development is around gaining the confidence to speak up. With violence against women being such an insidious problem in Australia in 2021, this book could not have come at a better time. I actually listened to this as an audiobook on BorrowBox and Paul reads the story himself. While he gives the story a personal touch, I could have very easily picked this one up as a text-based book and still enjoyed it immensely. If you grew up going to school in the southeastern suburbs, around Frankston, Seaford, or even as far up as Mentone, you're probably going to get a lot out of this story. And if you like your football, or maybe there's someone in your family that really loves the AFL, especially during the 90s, this book is definitely for them too. So. You can get this one as a physical copy in the library or you can pick it up as an e-book or e-audio book on the library catalogue too. That's Funky Town by Paul Kennedy. Hello, my name's Beth and I'm the CEO at Casey Cardinia Libraries. Today I'm reviewing The Paris Apartment by Lucy Foley. This little mystery is a quick read, which is a really good thing as it's available in our top titles collection, available for a two-week loan. It's got short chapters, easy to visualise characters and places, and a storyline that really rolls along. The story takes place in a grand old apartment building in the posh part of Paris. Is there any parts of Paris that are not posh? Well, the answer is yes, and we're taken to some pretty seedy places along this journey when we see the not-so-nice sides of the city. Our heroine Jess is trying to find her brother, who's mysteriously disappeared from the apartment block, and we're pretty sure he's come to a sticky end amidst a group of flawed cohabitants and large quantities of red wine. Full disclosure here, at the time of writing this, still a little way away from reaching the end of this tale and solving the mystery. 
I'm still hoping Ben turns up alive, but judging by the shifty moves of the apartment dwellers, I'm fast losing hope. If you want to join me in cracking this case wide open, pick up a copy of The Paris Apartment next time you see it on our top titles shelf. It's a Paris chic little ripper. Oh, that was an unfortunate analogy. Jack the Ripper, Little Ripper, Murders. Oh, sorry, Ben. I really hope you're still alive. It's available in our Top Titles collection or e-audio via our BorrowBox app. Hi, this is Michelle from Regional Support and this month I am reviewing Recursion by novelist and screenwriter Blake Crouch. In Recursion, New York City detective Barry Sutton is drawn into a new phenomenon called false memory syndrome, where people experience false memories of a previous life which ended on the day the memory started. Barry soon finds himself in the same situation, but is it as false as people are claiming? Helena Smith, on a separate path, is a genius neuroscientist whose work is world-changing. Helena and Barry will eventually meet, and only together can they stop the world from self-destructing. Recursion was a good reach choice winner in 2019 and has received a lot of critical acclaim, and I must agree, I thought it was wonderful. Although it's science fiction, it really is also a thriller and a mystery, and well worth reading. Crouch builds the story really beautifully from the separate storylines with Barry and Helena coming from their different perspectives and they're actually on different timelines to start with. But it's done very well and you never feel lost. And when they do finally connect, they will go through many mind-blowing scenarios in order to hopefully avert disaster. It's really realistic, so totally riveting and kind of a bit scary because the science may one day be possible. Recursion is available in print large print, audiobook, and as an audiobook from BorrowBox, I really recommend you try it out. If you enjoy listening to Book Matters, we would love you to give us a rating at your favourite podcast provider. That way, other book lovers will be able to find us too. For more details on the books mentioned in this podcast, as well as information from the library, head to www.cclc.vic.gov.au or visit our new Facebook group, In a Nook with a Book, where you can let us know what you've been reading. Until next time, this has been Janine, and you've been listening to Book Matters, a CCLC podcast for people who like to read, made by people who love reading. Goodbye.